Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Michelle James is a truly amazing person. I've spent many hours with her talking about her fascinating work. She asks incredible questions and is one of the most interested people that I know. Aside from her amazing career, her life-changing research and her passion for the beauty and wonder of science, she is truly a great friend and a wonderful person. It is my pleasure to share our discussion with you today. Well, Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having a chat. I have been uh, a fan of yours for so long, but much more than that, you are a dear friend. So thank you for joining. Yes, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Where are you phoning from today? I am in Palo Alto in Silicon Valley, California, USA. And I am looking out at a blue, blue sky and a palm tree, very Californian. Beautiful. Uh, feeling very lucky. Great. How long have you been uh, it, uh, sorry, in California for? Been a while? Uh, yes, it has been a while. <laughs> it's been 13 years. It was supposed to be only three uh, to, you know, to come over to do my postdoc at Stanford, but I fell in love with this place and yeah. ev- everything I can do. So, yeah. Uh, what is your coffee order for when I can finally buy your coffee <sighs> across the Atlantic? Mm-hmm. Oh, that would be nice. Well, okay, two different coffee orders then. If I'm in Australia, which is where I'm originally from, uh, right right near you, I would get a flat white, but they don't know what that is here in America. So I tried to order that for a while and was very disappointed and I, um, actually quite uh, perplexed by what they would give me if, if it was a cappuccino or flat white. So I actually now just do what the Americans do and I order Americano and um, I like that here. Is that pretty much the same thing or...? No, it's like the opposite. It's just like a long black, basically, but they do that really well. So, fantastic. Well, do you prefer Australian coffee or American coffee? I know that's very <laughs> controversial. <laughs> it is controversial. Uh, they're two different things. So, uh, <laughs> no comment. I just love coffee. That's a very good uh, diplomatic answer. No, no comment there. Yeah. Uh, so you don't want to turn your American friends and colleagues offside. So. That's right. I still want to get funding in the lab. So that's right. Um, so, uh, Michelle, um, just before we hit record, we we're talking a little bit about reading. Uh, what's a book that you have read that has changed your perspective on something? It could be uh, within your field, or it could be broader than that. Mm, yes. Well, I'd have to say there were a few biographies that I read early on, uh, probably toward the end of high school. I started getting interested in science uh, and so I started reading just about various people that I've heard had made an impact and I think one of them was about Isaac Newton and uh, it was called Never at Rest which I could relate to just from the title because I'm always thinking and doing something and so I wanted to get into his world and his head and I think I just really felt this uh, just a, a sense of connection. Uh, when I started reading about that and his process and way of being and thinking, living, breathing science and just, you know, obsessing uh, sort of on these questions that he had. And that sort of was just very affirming. I think it made me feel like it's okay to be like this and to sort of put that much uh, into uh, sort of that kind of a pursuit. And that led me into reading about Mary Curie. And she has, there's a biography called Obsessive Genius. So you're noticing a theme, this idea of obsessing and focusing on a problem that's much bigger than yourself. And I think a lot of people might say, oh, that's like maybe not a healthy way to be. But I think just getting a window into those people's lives and inner workings and reading about everything they gave up to uh, to really sort of make these big advances uh, for humanity got me really excited and yeah, just sort of okayed it for me and allowed me to explore and freely live in that way and approach my science in that way. And of course balance is important, but we can get back to that. I I think that really just changed things for me. Yeah. Would you say, um, would you say that you're obsessed with your work? And I I mean, Uh, obsessed in in, in, in a positive way, there's a, there's an element of it that, consumes your thinking and it's become the thing that you do? I, I would say yes. Uh, there's more to me than just my work, of course. Uh, 
however, I think that, you know, the first thing when I'm, when I'm waking up in the morning, if I'm in a shower, if I'm falling asleep, that's these things will pop up into my mind that are pertinent to, you know, uh, aspects of my work or questions or, you know, sort of those moments of, Hmm, that doesn't make sense. And it's sort of like, I'll come back to that. And they're the things that, uh, sort of tick over in my mind at various points throughout the day more than anything else. And I think that's when I, I come up with things or have sort of interesting thought experiments that lead to uh, things that I'll pursue in, in, the, in the next day kind of thing. So, yeah, I would say that would be accurate. That's, that's wonderful. I, I, would, uh, I would actually echo that. I, am, uh, I do have a life outside of what I do, but it has become somewhat of a, obsession and i think obsession is, is maybe not the right word it's just like that i know that is incredibly important and i maybe feel the responsibility of doing a really good job or trying to but um michelle for people that that aren't familiar with your work um what currently has your attention and your focus so we haven't actually talked about what you do we know that you're phoning from stanford and that you work really hard and you have all these amazing ideas that you come up with all of the time but what is it that you that currently has your attention Mm, so, I mean, so I, I am um, running my own lab at Stanford University and so I'm, I'm a professor there. And so my lab, uh, which is, is um, focused on medical research and we can get into a bit about what, what exactly, but that really does have the majority of my focus uh, and not just the lab and the science, but the students that uh, make up the lab really uh, uh, is, they're really what I think about all day, every day, you know, how, how they're doing, how can I mentor them and encourage them and help them with their projects. Uh, so, so I'd say my lab, the actual science that we do uh, has my attention and my students. Actually, I also run a company, I uh, started a startup uh, called Willow Neuroscience and that takes up probably a third of each day, <laughs> just thinking about that, trying to fundraise, and uh, run that company with my other co-founder and CEO. Uh, also, I am doing something that maybe uh, wasn't, maybe it's not the best idea to be doing that in amongst all these other things. But anyway, I was asked to organize the biggest conference in our field this year, and it's called the World Molecular Imaging Congress. So I'm working, uh, yeah, every day to, to organize things to do with that. And it's in October. So we're organizing plenary speakers to come in from all over the world, the whole scientific program, agenda, social activities, uh, ways to sort of advocate for science. So that's a lot of what I'm thinking about every day. And then I'd say my dog has my, <laughs> has my attention because she's beautiful. I got her last year during COVID, little sausage dog. Okay. So those things, yeah, all together. What's your dog's name? Uh, Juniper, uh, or Juni, my love of gin. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> um, Michelle, I have known you for, for many years and I have some incredibly fond memories of having conversations with you about what you're working on. And I've always thought that you seem to be one of the most interested people that I know. And it's, I'm just curious, how do you stay curious and how do you stay interested in your work? We talked briefly off air about off air before we recorded um, about how you've never really understood the concept of being bored. Um, how on earth do you stay excited and passionate about what you're doing? Well, it's really easy when you work in a field like mine. And I feel like science in general is so fascinating. There are so many different fields and subfields and people that are excited about what they're working on passionate and you know just so i think that's one thing i mean i just there's no way i can be bored but how i actually stay interested day to day and sort of it is an active uh you know pursuit of knowledge in the way that i'm reading papers of course uh, and i sort of have my my journal uh, highlights or keywords things so papers will get sent to me every Saturday morning. I have my ritual of like, you know, I get my, my feed of like the latest and greatest articles that have come out in certain, uh, you know, specific subfields and I'll have my coffee and read them. But then I, I think something that I've done more recently, uh, you know, during COVID is that I, I it's, it's kind of one of the nice things that's come out of that is I, um, we can ask people to have conversations like we're doing right now, jumping on Zoom, people that are across 
you know, the other side of the world. So what I've been doing is in my lab meetings, been having guest speakers and so intentionally asking people that are in different fields to speak to us uh, so we can learn how they're doing things and approaching their science, hoping that that will inspire us to approach our questions in a different way. So just the other day, we had somebody speaking to us about how they discovered uh, that tattoo ink can serve as a cancer marker. And um, anyway, so just like learning how Amazing. people are. Yeah. yeah and, and my students were so excited and inspired by it because this person uh, who is an amazing woman at um, USC uh, in, in Southern California, she was just sharing about uh, her love for animation and sort of all the colors. And she started thinking about these vibrant dyes and how they could be used to um, as, as a way to detect cancer early because they're so vibrant and bright. And then she started to think, where else are these colors being used and, and you know, colors that are vibrant and last a long time and that's tattoo ink. But in any case, every um, few weeks we have people, I seek out people that are doing really different uh, sort of almost off, off the wall things so that everyone else can learn about that. And that's one way of staying interested, uh, I would say. Amazing. It, it, it just sounds so fascinating. And I think despite of, of course, the obvious tragedy that's happened around the world with the global pandemic, I think it has definitely, in my case, um, opened up borders in many ways to be able to, to talk to people. And most people are available now to talk on Zoom because they're at home. Um, that's right. I know our, our context is very different um, back home that's right. in Australia than it is over where, where you are. But I do think that has been one of the, the, the positives to come out of a really challenging situation but and michelle i've got a bit of a curveball question i didn't mm. put this with you before because i just thought about it then cool. um but is there something that you have changed your mind about or is there something that you've been wrong about in your research that you started off with a hunch and went look i'm really i really think this is the reason why this is happening or i'm more than happy to come back to that one give you a bit of a th bit of a time to think it's a, good, it's a good question uh i'm i mean i'm sure that is true i'm That's just okay. trying to I'll, think of an example no, no, I, will, I will loop back. i'm never wrong <laughs> <laughs> i don't I'm know wrong. i feel like everything that i work on i'm rarely am i committed to one way of thinking right. about something right. if that makes sense yeah. i'm more exploratory and so it's it's more of a pursuit of truth uh, every day in the lab. And I might have, you know, a thought that, oh, this could be a good marker or this could be a good way of approaching it. Uh, and for the most part, we'll discover something true and interesting and we're not married to, or at least I'm not married to, yeah. you know, one thing or the other. So I, I think that's probably... I think that's probably a great, that, that's a great answer, just that idea of actually being open-minded when exploring and when answering those questions. And um, Michelle, I'm, I'm really curious about your experience um, with science at school. Um, and oh, yeah. if, a um, couple of kind of sub-questions, if you think it served you well um, in your current role as a scientist or what you would have liked to have changed about your experience of science at school. You both mm. to a, uh, a, a local school, well, local to where I am, um, so yes. in the Australian school system. So what was your experience like there? Yes, uh, it's interesting to reflect back on this now. Uh, and for context, everyone, this was back in the 90s. <laughs> and I graduated in, in 2000. But it wasn't. It, was, it, was <laughs> it wasn't. So, and, you know, I went to a public school and I, I had... A number of wonderful teachers, uh, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, one in particular, who was my science teacher, actually, yes. uh, Mr. Byrne. And I think about him often and still in touch with him. He came to my PhD graduation and um, he, he was wonderful. Uh, I think when I really reflect back on sort of my time at school and the sort of training I got in science, it, it really did and did not prepare me to be a scientist, if that makes sense, because uh, I, I think that the curriculum was such that it didn't really expose you to uh, how scientists sort of approach things day to day in, in an actual lab. It was more uh, regimented and uh, I would say, unfortunately, um, quite dry, repetitive, and boring. Uh, 
Um, I, it, science was my least favorite subject. I even heard myself say a number of times, my parents would, would tell you this, I never want to do science. Why would anyone do science? Because I didn't like it. Wow. I didn't like it at all uh, because I, I felt like, oh, everything was like rote learning. And if I have to like recite the structure of a you know bacterial cell versus a plant cell versus a you know <laughs> human cell i was just going to like go insane because that's what we kept learning over and over again every year i know a lot has changed and i've spoken with you about this and i really love the way that they're teaching science these days that was not the case uh back when i was at school and actually i was i was about to not do any science going into year um, 11 and 12 until my science teacher said, Michelle, uh, I really think you should reconsider because I've, I've seen the way you think and approach things and it's really different uh, in, in the best possible way. And I think that you should consider doing physics because uh, I noticed you love math, uh, you're good at that. And physics is really um, using math to understand how the world works, how the universe works. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And he gave me this book about physics and he said we can explain why why the sunset you know is a certain color why sky is blue all these things that i'm like well that would be amazing just to understand that from a mathematical point of view we didn't learn that uh again this could be a product of the time in the 90s also being at a public school uh and i wouldn't take back any of that honestly because i think the other side of this coin that you asked did, it, did my schooling prepare me for my career as a scientist or for where I am now. I think going to a public school and, uh, you know, having to really work hard and, and develop strategic ways to succeed and I felt like I had to fight for everything did prepare me for life as a scientist because there are no rules. There's, there's no roadmap. You're in a lab and you're deciding what to do and you might have a question of, okay, how do we cure Alzheimer's or how do we understand it better? You can't read that in a book. <laughs> like yeah. there's no one holding your hand and telling you how to do it. So you've got to be brave and bold and gritty and, you know, tenacious and you can't let anything scare you and you've just got to keep going. So I think in, in a way it did prepare me. Uh, so there, there is that. And I had the encouragement of some wonderful teachers. So that also helped a ton. I think it's just the content, the curriculum. It's, it was a little sad to me when I finally did get into a lab and, you know, I, I realized how wonderful it is, just the things you get to do as a scientist day to day. And I wanted to show everyone, I wanted to go back to my school and say, look at this, you know, we actually are, are doing things where we're imaging brains, you know, in animals or people, we're actually imaging molecular biology and seeing it in real time and understanding what, you know, how the brain works or why this disease is, occur is occurring. We have the, the ability to uh, come up with new ways to treat people and change medicine. So I, I think none of that came across to me when I was in high school, unfortunately. Wow, that's, it, it's really lovely to see you light up when you talk about your experience of science now, as opposed to what it was in school. And I, um, I couldn't agree more. I, for me, my example was maths. I absolutely hated maths. I think my teacher hated maths at school and we were, <laughs> why are we here? And, and now by far, um, it is my favourite subject to teach. Granted, I, I teach primary school maths. It's maybe not as complicated as, definitely not as complicated as high school maths and physics, but it is, it's really wonderful. And for me, the person that made a difference for me was a professor called um, Catherine Attard. And I have the privilege of talking to her next week. And she was my maths lecturer at uni. And I, I remember sitting in her lectures and her tutorials and it was like my eyes just opened and like, why didn't I know this was what maths is about? And if I had a choice and tell my principal, if I had a choice, I would teach maths all the time. Like I wouldn't bother with anything else. It is just this wonderfully rich, diverse, creative subject. And I just, I just wish I'd known about it in school. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. I love maths. Oh it's my so gosh. interesting. Like we look at the it's other satisfying. Guys, we're looking at like parallel and perpendicular lines in nature and 3D shapes in the environment. And we just went around the school and we photographed all these perpendicular and parallel lines. And the kids, my students were amazed that maths was everywhere. It yeah. wasn't just in a book. It wasn't just, it was beautiful. Just wonderful. And just to get to see them doing that. And Michelle, I'm really curious about your, um, about your science teacher, Mr. Byrne, 
Um, I've heard it said that students don't remember what we what we teach them, but they remember how we made them feel. And I was just wondering um, about how Mr. Byrne made you feel and what were some of the things that made him stand out to you? Oh, I love speaking about him because you're 100% right. A lot of the time I don't remember all the things he taught me, especially not in class. I, I don't remember all of those things, <laughs> but I do remember, uh, yeah, how he made me feel and, and how he, he would go above and beyond to, to really help me uh, and, and others, anyone who wanted his Was he happy his to see you when you walked into his classroom? Yeah, he, um, I mean, he was, he made things fun, but I, I think, how did he make me feel? He made me feel like he really cared about my future. Um, he saw me as an individual. He, he took the time to get to know like what my concerns were and what my passions were, what got me excited. He, he just got to know me. And that made me feel cared for and special and right. that, you know, that I just, I valued that. I, it was a relationship. And so that, that was important because there were times where I, I remember one time in particular, I'll never forget the feeling in this moment. I got my test results back for a science test in year nine and I got 86% and I was devastated. I had tears in my eyes. I was like, what? I always get above 90 in everything. <laughs> and it was like I failed. And I was just looking down at this and my eyes were like tearing up. And I was just like, okay, Michelle, get it together. Um, this is fine. Stop being a baby. Like you're just not meant to do science. It's okay. Like just focus on math and all of these other things. Anyway, I like walked out of the classroom and he followed me and said, Michelle, I just want to talk to you for a minute. And I said, yeah. And he goes, yeah. Because um, I was like tearing up, so embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> so embarrassing. <laughs> and he was like, um, "How are you doing?" And I was like, "Not good." And he was like, "What's what's going on?" And I just told him, and he goes, "Look, you know, you're. I know you're used to doing really well in all your subjects. I do want you to know that this test score, number one." it's a good score. <laughs> Number two, like you're still in the top five of the class. But most importantly, he said, the way you answered these questions, like, yeah, like you weren't giving the textbook answers to things. And that's a good thing. It's like, you know, you are thinking outside the box about science and the way you're, you're approaching all of this. And that to me, like, I wanted to give you a hundred percent, but it's just, you know, the way that the testing, the test was designed, yeah, you didn't get 100%, but I just want you to know that I think you have a real gift for science. And I believe, and this is what really, I, I will never forget this feeling. It was like the whole room just closed in. When, and he said, I believe that you are going to be a scientist. And I said, what? And he goes, this is what I see. I see you going to university. Like, forget about this right here, right now. School, I don't think you're not going to love it. It's not really your place. I see why you're not surrounded by people that are thinking like you. That's fine. Let's, we can talk about that another time. But I see you going to university and loving it. Amazing. You are going to meet all the people that are going to become your friends for life. You're going to be having these wonderful conversations in undergrad with people about, you know, ideas. And, you know, it's going to be great. And then he said, you are going to love it so much that you're going to do honors. Do you know what honors is? And I was like, no. And he said, well, that's where you're going to pick a project and you're going to focus on that. And you're going to go deep and it's going to be on something probably in the medical realm. Cause I just know you and how you care about people. You want to make a difference. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, then there's going to be, so there's going to be way less people, probably a hundred people in that program. Then you're going to love that. You're going to do a PhD and there's going to be probably 20 or 30 people. And you're going to, you know, be, be doing that and you'll probably make a discovery and I'm going to come to your PhD defense. And after that, you're going to run a lab someday. And I was like, what? And I did not believe him, but the way it, like, I just felt like all of this electricity was coming and I was like, how is he seeing this? And it's literally what's happened, <laughs> but there's no way I would have predicted that. Wow. But his voice kept coming into my mind whenever I doubt myself that, you know, this person believes in me 
And I think that, and he believes in me, not just like a random person that's like, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want. Like you can do whatever you put your mind to. It wasn't a throwaway line. It was like, he, he knew me. He took the time to get to know me and he spoke directly to those dreams and specifically to what he thought I was capable of. And I thought that, that, was, that was powerful. That, that is powerful. And I, um, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely getting a little bit emotional about that because I think that you, like every, every child deserves that and every child deserves somebody to say, look, I can see far beyond where you are currently at and I believe in you and I will stand by you and I'll be here to support you and if need be, I will attend your PhD graduation. Um, I remember um, for me, a teacher called Miss Jones, who I'll be having a chat to in a little while, was that um, teacher that made a difference for me. I remember being in year three and just being this um, chubby little kid sort of waddled into her classroom and um, was going through a really, really challenging time at home. Like my parents were uh, not, they were definitely going through some really difficult times and it wasn't a particular, particularly amicable time at that. And I just remembered feeling so lost and going into Miss Jones's classroom and knowing that I felt valued and cared for and heard. And I wasn't the only one in that class, even though I felt like I was. I know that she just took the time to believe in us. And I remember I went back to, um, to my local primary school in the UK a few years ago and just gave her a hug. And it was the weirdest thing, hugging your primary school teacher. And I still I love say, it. I can't call her Beth. I have to call her Miss Jones because she's my year three teacher. But I remember how she made me feel. And she took the time to say, Matt, like, called me Matty. Mm. Um, it is very sweet. And she, um, she said, look, I believe that you're going, you're going to go and make a difference in the lives of young people. And I didn't feel like that because I was seven or eight and feeling particularly lost. But we do need, we need these educators to take the time to, um, to speak into what the potential of these young people. And it's so important. And Michelle, I did want to ask you about, um, how this maybe changes your approach or how this has influenced your approach with running your own lab because now you're responsible for i believe six or so individuals um i'm not sure what i was looking at the uh, lab uh, website and there's one guy and five girls slightly outnumbered um but i was just wondering how how do you take some of these lessons that you've learned from mr Byrne or these lessons of leadership and um uh, investing into other people and seeing their potential into your own role because now you're that person that gets to take the time and speak into other people how does how does that look like for you what does that look like for you yeah i um i mean i take it really seriously uh and i mean it, it's a it's an absolute honor and it, it's something that it consumes a lot of my thinking is how do i best support these people because they're all incredible uh individuals and so different and I mean, they've all come into my life and my lab through different mechanisms too. There's no one way uh, that I could say you, you could get into a career in science or find yourself in a lab at Stanford. Like, honestly, we have people from all walks of life and it's, it's great. And so right now we do only have one guy in the lab. And he, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have another one soon. Um, but it's nice to sort of, I know people are like, oh, the, the woman lab. And I'm like, what? I mean, just because, I mean, that's kind of how yeah. I, I think I it's think, nice. I think it's wonderful. And we'll maybe have a, <laughs> a little bit chat, a chat later about how we, yeah. I, I love that it's a, a disproportionate representation of, I think it's great. Well, it's, I think the pendulum has to swing. And uh, yeah, so it's, I, I'm unapologetic about that. Okay. Uh and, and he's great. So anyway, I think I, I mentor people um, on a very individual basis. And I always start um, with, you know, we have notes that are shared. So on um, Apple computers and on your phone, it's like a notes app. So we like all for each student, we have a shared note for just between them and I. And I start with like, okay, please take some time to think about what your big picture goals are, like you know, between one and three. Uh, for your career and for your science and then some like shorter term goals and then let's talk about it. dream big like think about what are the things you that, that scare you because you're so excited about them and write them down because there's a lot of again power in writing things down 
and then we'll talk about them. We can start making steps. So they do that and we sit down, uh, you know, every other week I meet with them one-on-one and then uh, once a month it's focused on like career goals and, you know, we'll get out their CV. I'm all about being strategic and really valuing people's time and efforts and energies. I don't want them to invest in things that aren't going to be helpful for their future. I think that that happens too often where people are, um, you know, just left um, without proper mentoring or guidance. And I also encourage them to get a network of mentors. It's not just me, but um, I think there's, there's, uh, that can help them. It's, it's really important to have mentors from all different stages and um, types of, uh, that have different types of advice and experiences. So uh, yeah, I think that taking the time to be with them is the biggest thing because that's what I valued most in uh, my interactions with Mr. Byrne, but also my mentor at Stanford who sadly passed away last year. Uh, But I will never forget any of the moments that we shared where he would give me his time and um, specific focus and energy to help me with things. So I think that that's the biggest one is, is time. And it, it does cost a lot. <laughs> We've spoken about this uh, just before we got on, on the phones, like the cost and sacrifice you make. But I think giving your time to students and individuals has the biggest impact on their lives and others because it, it really is like a domino effect. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so important. And it, t- it takes a level of emotional intelligence as well to know what people are going through to be able to be empathetic and to listen. And um, it, it's so interesting that it's not a surprise, but it's really interesting that now you're in that position with with people to get to invest into them and to get to be strategic in terms of drawing out their career goals. And it's something I think which is so precious and that very fortunate to, uh, to be in your lab and um, it's really exciting. It, it, everyone looks happy in the photos. So, uh. Well, yeah, and I love like hearing about, you know, all their achievements, seeing them, uh, you know, succeeding in different ways. Like I feel like every week there's something exciting that happens and we get to celebrate uh, together as a group because it's, uh, it's again, it's, it's all about sort of writing these things down and working toward uh, the goals, which sounds really obvious, but for the most part, you'd be surprised how often that um, people lose sight of that because you're just busy uh, with, you know, academia, science, administrative tasks, and people forget about their own goals and being strategic. But when you, you, you know, you have someone uh, championing you and really helping you with all of those steps that I, I think that that's where there can be uh, a lot of, a lot of good and progress and momentum. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Michelle. Um, what uh, what's your experience been like in um, as a female scientist? Um, I'm uh, essentially asking for help. I have two very young girls who are incredibly inquisitive. Um, has it always been positive, or and also how can we um, encourage much more younger or many more young girls to pursue a career in science? Yes, I um, have had quite a varied experience, and I think. I mean, my life as a scientist uh, really started, I would say, for reals in university uh, in Sydney, University of Sydney. And I found myself being, you know, the only female in the area of work that I chose to pursue for my honours and PhD. So I was, which, and that area of work is radiochemistry. Uh, so I make radioactive molecules, I design them so that uh, we can use them to track down brain diseases. And so I would be in the cyclotron facility in the basement of uh, the Royal, um, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. And I'd be the only woman. And I was definitely the youngest by about 20 years as well. So I was, there was, there was um, all sorts of bias going on toward uh, my age and my sex. And I felt that in a very real way every day. And I don't, I don't blame anyone for it. It's just, there wasn't anyone else like me there. And that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I think it made them feel uncomfortable. And um, yeah, so it, it wasn't always positive, but I, I felt, I feel grateful looking back that they gave me the opportunity and, and did teach me. And, 
I, I learned a ton and got exposed to all sorts of things, but it, it was challenging. And I, I, and I think the biggest challenge was not having other female mentors. There was no one that looked like me there. And it, it was hard because I, I, I came up against a lot of opposition. Uh, people would second guess me a lot. And I think that's a big thing for women. Uh, in academia, something that I've noticed my whole career, not just there, but, you know, coming into Stanford, you know, post, I, you know, I had a PhD at that point, but then doing a postdoc and then sort of fighting my way through to now become faculty. But at every step, uh, some of the things I noticed, the challenges specific to women, uh, and I'm sure is the case for um, all of the un un under unrepresented minorities is that um, you have to, produce two to three, maybe even five times as much work um, and sort of products or publications in order to get the same level of respect as, as a white man. And that was just how it is. You just have to work harder and do more. And even then, you're still, as a woman, I think, seen uh, typically as someone who's helping oh, they're like helping to do this project or, um, and you're always getting asked to serve on these committees that take time. It's like, that's like a woman's job. It's like organizing things. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't like to say yes to all those things all the time. Uh, although I enjoy it, I, I'm strategic about that. And also about, you know, just knowing that we have to produce more work, it's, it's annoying, but it's something that I just got used to and just had to do. Also this um, sort of balancing act, uh, you know, trying to like, I guess it's, you're, you're often as a woman perceived to either be too feminine or too masculine, like too bossy or, um, you know, too much of a pushover. And that was, that was a huge struggle, something I had to work really hard on and, uh, just understanding, like, who, how do I just be myself <laughs> and in this career that, I, that I'm pursuing and be okay with people's reactions, uh, but still make it and to be able to succeed. And it, it was challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think the biggest one is the role models, just not having the women role models around. And that's changing now. And something I spoke a lot to my brother, who's one of my key mentors in life, Andrew James, uh, I would come home he's crying. Amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. amazing. I, I would come home crying. He's younger than me, but I feel like he's a lot older and wiser. I would come home crying from the lab often. And he would say, hey, what's up? Are you okay? And I'd tell him, like, somebody just stole my idea and played it off as their own. They told me it was stupid. But, you know, he hears all the time. It happens. Happened to me a lot. And I'd say, I don't know if I can do this. I look around at the people that are in the positions that I ultimately want. And I, I don't want to be like them. Like, so maybe I shouldn't be here because I don't want to have to be cutthroat and cruel and, you know, stepping on people in order to get to this place of running my own lab. That's not the kind of person I am. So maybe I'm not cut out for this. And he said, no, you are cut out for this because you love it you absolutely love science and you're going to make a difference and you have to stay. And I was like, I don't know if I can do it. He's like, you can, and you will. And you know why? Because if you leave now, there's going to be more people like you that will come into the lab. They'll look around and see no one like them. Then they'll leave. And then it will keep happening and keep happening. You have to stay so that the next you that comes along will see you and say, oh, thank goodness, wow. Michelle's there so I can do this. And that made such an impression on me. I think about it daily. Like if something is challenging, uh, I think well, I have to stay and I have to figure out a way to stay and change the culture for the next generation and to partner with other people that are like-minded and they exist. And that's where I think you get strength is finding those people, uh, you know, not taking things personally. Uh, challenges are always going to be there, but just accept it's, it's part of it. And it's, it, challenges are part of anything working towards anything that's meaningful. So I think that accepting that and partnering with the right people um, is amazing. Important. I've got goosebumps. Like I'm just thinking about all of, like, like I said, I'm a, I'm a dad to two very young girls and I'm also a, a white male. And so like, I just never, I just never considered um, 
embarrassingly, I've just, and, and shamefully, I've just, I just never experienced or considered um, issues such as these. Um, but I know that if, if someone tells my little girls they can't do something, like it, they're completely wrong because they are these two powerful little women. Um, I'm, they are um, mixed race kids. And so like they are, there's a whole, there's a whole range of things that I'm sure that they are a range of stereotypes that they will break. And it's so wonderful to hear someone in your position speak so passionately about it, but not just someone who is speaking about it, somebody that's doing something about it. And it's so lovely um, to hear about the work that you're doing in your lab. And it's, it's not just about the science, like it's really changing the way that we, we view science and we view um, uh, kind of gender roles. It's really, really cool to see and really exciting. And um, I, I don't feel sorry for the one or the other guy that's um, working on their own. I think it's a wonderful environment to be a part of. And um, I like that it's an even playing field. People have got to, you know, it's, it's really lovely. So, so wonderful to see Michelle. And thank you for uh, sharing that so honestly. Um, I did want it would be amiss of me uh, not to ask about some of your amazing, uh, some of the work that you're doing currently. Um, why is Tony Weiss Corey so significant to you and why is his work important? Yeah, so he's actually a close collaborator, uh, somebody who is, is a professor at Stanford in, in neuroscience and his office is actually next to mine, which is uh, fortunate. Thank he is... Yeah, and that's how things happen. Um, yep. That's that's why I love. I mean, I think people will often say, "Oh, science, you're kind of stuck in a lab, and it's really antisocial." But I have to say, it's one of the most social careers because you're constantly having conversations with people about you know interesting questions and how to work together. You can't do science by yourself. So, Tony and I started chatting uh, many many years ago, probably back in 2012. Uh, about his work and how we could combine our different approaches uh, to help each other. And he's really focused on trying to understand the aging process. And his dream has been to discover the fountain of youth uh, to sort of rejuvenate your your body as you age. And so he... It's been rough. <laughs> so if you need anyone <laughs> to test any products, send them my way. Please. Well, yeah, um, there, there are trials going on and he started a company actually called Alkahest um, that is working on this exact thing and they'll be using one of my imaging techniques to right. monitor people uh, as, they, as they give them these treatments. So he discovered that uh, blood from a young mouse uh, when given to an older mouse rejuvenates that mouse and uh, in their their, their mind cognitively as well as all of the organ functions and so he started to it's what we call the vampire project basically <laughs> just going to take young blood from uh <laughs> anyone who's willing uh to be a donor but basically now they're, they're doing all of these trials in alzheimer's patients where they're giving them blood transfusions from young healthy people uh and then Better than that, Tony's like, well, what is it in the in the young blood? Like, we need to understand what exactly is uh, are the components that are having these positive effects, or is it that the old blood has a lot of really toxic agents? Amazing, amazing. And so he, like, we would have a lot of conversations, and he'd call me up and say, Michelle, I think I found out what one of the proteins is that you know really has this positive effect on the brain. Can you radio label it? Can we, you know? inject that into an animal and see if it crosses the blood brain barrier and see if it's going to where we think it is, which is the hippocampus, uh, which is you know where the, the main part of your brain that uh, is responsible for forming new memories. And so we did that and uh, we did prove that it was doing that. And even more, more um, exciting than that. So that was one paper that um, his lab published in Nature, which is really, I mean, the best science journal. And I was just part of that work and humbled to be part of it uh, and honored. Then after that, he, I thought that was crazy enough. Then he came to me and said, Michelle, can we just radio label all the proteins in blood, like all together? And I was like, oh gosh, in my head, I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> but it was him, so I just said, we can try. And he said, that's he goes, great. And I said, okay, like, this is what I'm thinking. We will give it a go. And we chatted back and forth. He showed me some data where he had this idea that, you know, maybe 
Um, there are a ton of these different proteins that are getting in or not getting in, and we, we, we need to catalog them. Anyway, we did the experiments, and the results were the opposite of what we thought, which I thought was really cool. Wow. wow. I said to my student, wait a minute, did you label the tubes wrong? <laughs> did you switch them? Because it was the complete opposite of what we were thinking. And he said, no. And then we repeated it and the same results. And I was like, okay, this is real. Like, this is exciting. What is this? And I was nervous to tell Tony because I was like, oh, this is going against his hypothesis. But I just said, look, this is real. And he said, you know, what's really cool, Michelle, is we were doing the experiment from another perspective using mass spectrometry, mass spec, mass spectrometry. And uh, they actually found the same thing, but using a different technique. So we're like, whoa, this is really real. So that work also got published in Nature. And we basically proved, uh, and this is really him, I have to say, of course, we were a big part of it but uh, we proved that the blood-brain barrier um, really becomes dysfunctional as you age and uh, you end up uh, not being able to transport in these beneficial proteins. We used to think it was that your blood-brain barrier became very leaky and let in all sorts of toxic things, but it's actually the opposite. It's not able to receive the sorts of nutrients it needs. Um, so very wow. exciting. That, that's fascinating. So is... So obviously blood is a key component to aging. What's yeah. The proteins in blood. Yes. Isn't like, that is just, that is fascinating. And also I love the name, the vampire analogy. <laughs> yes. Wow. That, that, that's really, that, that's, that's incredible. So what is, and, and bearing in mind, speaking to a, um, a primary school teacher here, um, I, I'm trying to understand what is a PET. And how do you use that to visualize? And I'm, I'm just, I'm just reading from uh, your resume. How do you use that to visualize the non-inflammatory component of Alzheimer's disease? And also, why is it important? What, what do you like? What does why is visualizing these things so important? And also, what on earth are radio glands? <laughs> uh Yes, so these are all of my favorite words and topics. Uh, I could I'm just out. trying to like break them up into little components and sound them out as we do in a classroom. I like it. Yes, so PET, we call it PET, um, yes. but it's not your average PET. It's positron emission tomography. And uh, what that is, is uh, a method of imaging, um, yeah. sort of like an MRI or, or CAT scan. Uh, but instead of being able to look at anatomy, which is what you're doing with an MRI or a CT or CAT scan, where you're looking at either bones or soft tissue, a PET scan uh, will allow you to look at molecular processes. So, for instance, you if you, um, un unfortunately, if somebody discovered they had a tumour and they detected that um, with an MRI or a CT, and they can just see the mass. And But we wanted to know, is it metabolically active? Is it responding to a therapy or not? And a lot of the times you won't be able to tell that by looking at the anatomy. The tumor won't always shrink, but you'll, the therapy might actually be having a positive effect, or maybe it's the other way around. So we need to look at the molecular processes that are happening, not just the anatomy, because uh, molecular processes will happen far earlier than any anatomical change. And so a PET scan, people will have this, especially for cancer. Um, if you hear someone going in for a PET scan, it's usually for cancer. That will allow us to see whether the tumor is metabolically active, whether it's requiring more glucose, more sugar, more food. You can see that process in real time. And why that's so important is what I was just saying before. It gives us an early detection method um, as to whether someone A has a cancer or B if a therapy is working and if it's not we can switch it so it gives us a lot of uh, you know it, it helps us to really better treat um, you know patients amazing thank you so much for uh, making me sound making me feel smarter um, so if I see uh, someone who's in that industry I can say so yeah love radio glands they're great and radio ligands <laughs> Radio ligands. Yes. So, you know, you need a radio ligand uh, to you to do a PET scan. So that's the molecule that has the radioactive isotope on it. And you inject that into someone and have a scanner so you can pick up uh, the gamma rays that are emitted after that is um, injected into someone. 
Fantastic. Michelle, just a couple more questions. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I know that you, uh, you, your puppy might come in at some point. Um, so, yes. Um, can you maybe explain a little bit briefly about your work with pain imaging? Um, you've, you've a number of conversations that we have um, that's come up in conversation. I'm just fascinated. How on earth do we image or do we measure something which is so subjective? Uh, yes, it's an important question because I, I think that uh, the pain is actually the number one reason that someone goes to a doctor ahead of the common, common cold now. And so it's a massive problem. Wow. And I know you would have heard about um, the opioid epidemic that um, is a huge problem. And, and it, we, that really is as big a problem as it is because we don't have effective ways of diagnosing and treating pain. Uh, because like you're saying, it's quite subjective, we don't understand it. Uh, but there's a lot going on, again, at the molecular level that we can learn about through such devices as a PET scan. And so it was, I, I, I myself actually had chronic pain uh, when I first joined Stanford as a postdoc and was passed around the medical system trying to get to the bottom of it. I had chronic wow. knee pain and no one understood why. And I started to feel really crazy because I had all these scans and they all were negative. It's like, you're fine. Everything looks normal. But these were looking at anatomy. They were looking at very basic biomarkers in blood, uh, things that were very insensitive and general. Wow. And I was just feeling increasingly crazy. And then I was getting depressed and they wanted to you send me to psychiatry and I was like, no, I am depressed because you can't figure out what's going on with my pain. Right. So anyway, and this is a very common experience. Unfortunately, it's really, really sad. And so I partnered up with one of the uh, amazing clinicians at Stanford, Sandeep Biswal, uh, who is working in this area. And I said to him, I'm a chemist. I can help make things. You're a musculoskeletal radiologist who cares about helping people in pain, let's do something about this. So we designed a molecule uh, that would bind to a specific protein or receptor that's only there when there is pain. Uh, and so it's expressed in the Schwann cells of nerves. Uh, so we're basically imaging nerves when they are encountering pain or in this stuck in a pain cycle, you'll see uh, this biomarker pop up um, this protein. And so I made a molecule that can bind to that. And because it has a radioactive tag, we can see it. So we came up with the, uh, with that approach. And then my um, colleague, Dr. Biswell started imaging people doing whole body and brain scans, even if someone just had knee pain or foot pain. And the results were absolutely mind blowing because people would come in with you know, sore back or sore knee or sore foot, and you'd see things lighting up in other areas of the body that would explain why they had pain. And we, we now have a number of cases where that completely changed the way that uh, doctors then, uh, you know, formulated a treatment strategy for that patient and effectively cured their pain because of those imaging results showing that, you know what, you had foot pain, but there was actually this hot spot in your knee and it turned out to be a lipoma and we removed it. And now that person is completely fine. Whereas before they spent five years in debilitating pain bed bound. Now they have their life back. So it's just, I think that's one of the most exciting things uh, that I've been a part of and I've been very lucky to be a part of that. Wow. That is so, so, so fascinating. And I feel like it's a podcast episode on each of the topics that you've raised and more. Um, really so interesting, Michelle, and, and thank you for, for sharing some of your incredible research. Of course, Matt. It's my pleasure. And, you know, you did mention inflammation, and I just wanted to quickly touch on that before we wrap up yeah, because it is my passion and something that's very related, um, very relevant, sorry, uh, to what's going on with COVID right now uh, is so my lab is really focused on trying to understand the role of the immune system in all sorts of diseases, whether it be pain, you know, Alzheimer's, uh, we do a lot on chronic fatigue sy syndrome, uh, you know, any of these diseases, there is an immune component uh, that causes maladaptive or toxic inflammation. And so something that has come up very recently with COVID is people are having these long-term effects. It's, you know, what they're calling long haulers. Uh, they'll have, cognitive decline, brain fog, uh, fatigue, just um, all, all sorts of um, awful uh, debilitating sorts of effects. They're just, they're not the same. 
And that's thought to be caused by inflammation in the brain. And that's really what uh, my lab works on is trying to detect that so we can better understand it and then modulate your immune response such that it, um, you know, restores those immune cells back to proper functioning and eliminates the toxic inflammation. So I think that it's important for us to understand that when you're exposed to a virus, any sorts of infection, there can be consequences that occur all over your body and brain that we need to be aware of. And I think people need to get vaccinated and they've already noticed that long haulers that get vaccinated, those symptoms go away. That's pretty amazing. That means that there was still residual virus that was causing these inflammatory processes. And then when you vaccinate, um, you know, expose your body to spike protein, you can generate proper immune response. It's eliminating that. So that's exciting. And I just wanted to share a little bit about the importance of um, your immune response. Yeah, absolutely. And so important to, um, to raise awareness for things like that. It's, it really isn't a, an incredible time. I know our, our circumstances in Australia, um, I keep saying back home because I hope that you come back, um, but our um, experiences back in Australia are so different to uh, what's happening in the United States. And it's, um, it, it's just a completely different environment over there. And so I think all the wonderful work that you're doing um, and the incredible scientific community is um, is more important now than ever before. So thank you for all of the things that you're doing over there to keep people safe and also raise awareness for these really important scientific questions. Um, Michelle, just uh, one last question. Um, what advice would you give to people that are considering a career in science um, and also specifically uh, tailored to any little girls uh, that are listening? I would say be bold and creative in any of the questions or pursuits that you're thinking about. Uh, you know, keep questioning and you don't have to do things the way that everyone else does. I think the more creativity you can incorporate in your science, the better. I have a lot of young women that say to me, oh, I'm more interested in art and design. I say, that's great. We need, we need you in science. Like if you're also interested in science, but you're thinking more about creative fields, I, I think that I would encourage you to be creative in science because that's where discoveries can happen. Yeah. Uh, I would also say that every single person that I know <laughs> has the imposter syndrome, which is where you think you're, you know, you're going to get found out. You're not good enough to be somewhere that you're a fraud. Everyone has it every single person and so just accept that and move on and my last thing is just mentoring and how important it is if you're thinking about a career in science uh you know get yourself a mentor and you know become a mentor if you can too but i think when you're starting out uh ask someone to be your mentor i'm happy to be a mentor i have people that i know that would be happy to mentor there are networks of people i think that is the most life-changing thing because you'll get opportunities you'll learn uh, more quickly about what you need in order to succeed in in this kind of career which is not an easy career by any means but it's extremely rewarding and so i think don't ever be afraid to reach out to people because uh you know more often than not, actually all the time, I feel like people are just honored and excited. Um, if you ask them, would you mentor them? And it's such a rich experience. So that would be my advice. Amazing. Michelle, what a wonderful uh, place to finish our very wide ranging discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I'll put a link to uh, your lab and to your uh, profile at Stanford. So if anyone wants to find out more about your work, they can do that. But thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.